This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Today, coming to you from the Houses of Parliament. As MPs return to Westminster after the summer recess, did the whole of my Times Radio show from down here in Westminster, hence the uh, echo, uh, in the beautiful um, Upper Waiting Hall, it's called. Which the, the name doesn't really give um, uh, credit to its grandeur. Lots of carved statues of kings all around us, uh, gold-plated crests, an enormous fireplace, and above me, uh, an enormous painting of King Lear. Uh, make of that what you will. Coming up uh, on today's episode, we take a look at some exclusive YouGov polling uh, into uh, what the public think of the Cabinet. Boris Johnson, Keir Starmer... Pretty Patel and yes, Dominic Raab after his holidays. Henry Zephyr will pick over that. We'll also speak to some MPs who were elected in 2019 and only had a few weeks in Parliament before the pandemic hit. What do they want to get out of the coming weeks? We're also going to bring you on a Monday our PM of the week. Andrew Jimson, the author, has been counting down all 55 Prime Ministers. Uh, since the beginning of the year, and we thought, actually, they're so good, we'll start to bring you them on the podcast. So coming up today, we've got Asquith. But first, it's our columnist panel. Uh, Today, Rachel Sylvester joining me in person, along with Lucy Fisher from The Telegraph. There's so much we could talk about this morning. Let's focus on social care uh, because it's the big issue of the week, it seems, uh, Rachel. And Boris Johnson seems to have just... We spoke to Rob Halfon, a Tory MP, a couple of minutes ago. He says, I would vote for national insurance rights to pay for social care, but only if it kicked in at £40,000. And I suspect we're going to get 300-odd uh, different ideas from every Tory MP. I will vote for it, but only if you just do it like this and you tweak it like that. It's a exactly, big problem, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. And the problem is they've decided on this so- national insurance rise, it seems, really based on politics rather than the policy. So they thought Tony Blair and Gordon Brown got away with this, put a penny on national insurance for the NHS, we'll do the same, nobody will notice. But actually it's quite bad policy because pensioners, working pensioners don't pay national insurance. Lots of things aren't covered by it, rental income, dividends, etc. So actually a much fairer way 
would just be to do a basic rise on income tax across the board for everyone. So everyone's going to have something they don't like. But the truth is we do all have to contribute. It's not something that only pensioners should pay because we're all going to need social care at some point, or we might all need it. So the key thing is you've got to spread the risk between as many people as possible. So it's sort of like a massive insurance scheme, and everyone pays the least possible amount. Uh, but, but Tory MPs don't want anyone to pay anything. And the, uh, the big issue, Lucy, is that we haven't really heard very much about what, what, what we're going to get for this extra tax. Yes. It's, it's a big row about putting up the national insurance, but not really, you know, apart from Boris Johnson saying we are going to fix social care more than two years ago. What does, what does that mean? Well, I think it's a really good point to make um, about the sequencing of, uh, of all this, that the row over the funding for the reform um, has come ahead of uh, any any policy details being outlined. In a way, I think that's a mistake because in actual fact, you have real consensus about the fact that social care reform is long overdue and that this is a nettle that needs to be grasped immediately. So I think that that was a sort of starting point of consensus that the government could have uh, run from, set out the plans, gained a degree of support over that, done some pitch rolling, and then talked about the money side of it. So I find that um, a, a little bit bizarre. But certainly now, I, I slightly disagree with you, Rachel, that I think that all Tories disagree with um, there needs to be a tax rise for pay for this. I think there are some. Marcus Fish, um, you know, chairman of the Economic Growth Group of Conservative MPs, people like him, uh, very much on, on the right of the party, um, economically speaking, I do think you're right, um, are, uh, object in principle to any kind of tax rise and breaking the manifesto tax log. But I think there is um, there is a spectrum of opinion, and others are more open to it. But I think, as you as you said, Rachel, want to see it done in what they consider a fairer way, particularly when it comes to the generational element. This is going to be a policy that benefits older people. It shouldn't fall on the shoulders of the working age uh, working age population, including those on low wages. It's a real sort of cart before the horse. Rather than deciding what do we want social care to look like, how much is that going to cost? And then, how are we going to raise that? And what are we going to? It seems like they've had an argument about one percent and two percent, possibly landed on one percent, and then presumably going to solve that. That's going to raise that amount. How thinly can we spread that? Mm. And so we could end up in a situation where we, we don't fix social care after all. Well, the irony as well is that the plan has been there really for more than 10 years. Andrew <laughs> Dillnot published it. Uh, you know, and it was all, even before he published his report, the sort of consensus was building around this idea of a cap on care costs. There's also pretty much a consensus now across the board about the need to uh, improve wages and make sure there's enough care workers coming into the system to deal with the aging population. Um, so actually the, the system reform there is quite wide agreement on what, what needs to happen. But the strange thing is Boris Johnson claimed he had a plan ready to go, you know, two years ago, didn't then say what that plan was, and now has got into this row I think about it's fair, the I mean, far be it for me to cast aspersions on the Prime Minister. I think it's fair to say that two years ago he did not have a plan prepared. I think that's very fair to say, I, but I, Andrew Dillnot did. Uncharacteristically, <laughs> he may have said something that turned out not to be entirely uh, the case. What about the politics of this, um, Lucy? Uh, Keir Starmer's given an interview to the He's had a quiet summer, I think it's fair to say. Um, and so he's tried to sort of come back, hitting the ground running, speaking to the Daily Mirror, the sort of the, the in-house paper of the Labour Party. And, uh, but he's ruling out uh, Labour backing an increase in national insurance. So again, we, 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 sort of, we risk turning it, this into a sort of a massive political row. And therefore, uh, MPs in seats where Labour are close behind, those MPs might start wobbling. So instead of solving something that in theory everyone agrees on, 
Yeah, we had it before when there were cross-party talks and then it mm-hmm. turned to the death tax and it all fell apart. Uh, wh- what do you make of the Labour, Labour's approach to this? Well, I think, first off, you're right, Matt. It has been incredibly quiet summer for Labour. You know, the latest opinion poll shows they're still five points behind the Conservatives uh, in the polls. Keir Starmer's come out and said that Labour won't support a national insurance rise um, to fund uh, the long-term overhaul of social care. He hasn't set out an alternative, though. There's a lot of pressure on him from um, Andy Burnham, King of the North, um, to, uh, to, to, to look instead to a wealth tax, taxing uh, wealth uh, instead of work. I, I think Labour really need to come forward and put, put their own stamp and policy proposals out. Keir Starmer said in this Mirror interview that he wants to wait until the next manifesto is drawn up, you know, several years hence when this policy might even be implemented. Um, and I think a key reason that's important is because it's not it's not clear what, what the alternatives are. You know, I think income tax is a serious alternative. It's one of the big levers, like national insurance, like VAT. Some of the talk in Labour circles about, for example, raising capital gains tax, it's not clear that that would raise uh, enough money. I think another area where we haven't heard Labour really um, speaking a lot about yet, but I think is going to become a big uh, issue of contention in all this, is that this is a levy that's not just going to fund social care reform. It's also supposed to be the extra money that the NHS needs. We need to see exactly um, what what the government's going to set out in terms of national insurance rises and how much it will raise. But a lot of the talk has been that it'll be about £10 billion a year. Well, that alone is what NHS leaders say that the health service needs. So there's nothing left for social care. So there's nothing left for social care. And I think that's why we've seen this really down-to-the-wire wrangling between the Prime Minister and the Chancellor over the weekend, because Rishi Sunak is desperate to make clear that if he agrees to a big tax rise now, that this isn't just going to be the thin end of the wedge and he's going to have to put it up you know, next year or, or the year after to, um, to deal with all sorts of things like the NHS waiting list, extra costs for PPE, hospital cleaning and all the other fallout from the, from the COVID pandemic. Well, let's talk about Rishi Sunak for a bit because he's got quite a lot of... Uh, trying to get his spreadsheet to add up is going to be a big challenge over the coming weeks. Um, and uh, I remember... Sp- and I've, I've mentioned this on the show before, but I remember speaking to someone at the Treasury who said... It was at a time when everyone said, oh, Rishi's been taken hostage by Treasury orthodoxy. And they said, it's not Treasury orthodoxy, it's maths. And <laughs> it, 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 what you spend should, in theory, match what you're raising. You can't permanently go on uh, borrowing. Um, uh, so alongside this row about uh, social care and how he's going to raise the money for that, uh, there's a big row coming, I think, on Wednesday. Labour are going to force a vote on the uh, taking the £20 universal credit uplift away. And that's due to kick in uh, next month. Again, the politics is, of this is really tough, isn't it, mm. um, Rachel? Mm. Because these yeah. are the families, low-income working families, who Boris Johnson made real inroads with. Exactly. You've got Marcus Rashford now coming out against yeah. that universal tax. Uh, credit card. I think there's a really interesting dynamic here politically. So there is obviously tension between the Treasury and Number 10 and between Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson. You only have to look at them to see the difference in temperament and attitude and politics. You know, Rishi Sunak, very controlled, disciplined, very thin. Boris Johnson, (laughs) let it all hang out, spend, spend, spend. (laughs) But I think there's, for me, what's most interesting is there's also a sort of internal conflict within the Tory coalition. So those sort of traditional Shire Tories who want their taxes low, they're state controlled, uh, and then the sort of new red wall conservatives, who many of whom are probably on universal credit, depend on the public services. And that's a kind of really fundamental disagreement about the size of the state, uh, how taxes should be raised, whether tax should be on wealth or work. Um, and so in a way, that's an internal conflict within the Tory coalition and therefore within the prime minister himself. 
uh, as well as between Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak. This is sort of this is this is this is what happens when cakeism comes up against reality, exactly. isn't it, Lucy? That the seeds actually of most of what we're going to see over the next few weeks were sown two years ago in the run-up to that uh, election campaign. And if you have a manifesto which promises we will fix social care and we won't put up tax, that doesn't work. No, that's right. And, you know, I think we just have to look at the whole list of spending demands that are beleaguering the Treasury. You know, the green agenda is another massive theme of this autumn in the run-up to the COP26 climate summit in Glasgow. You know, all sorts of spending needed there around infrastructure for electric vehicles to subsidise the switch from gas boilers to greener alternatives. Then you get to the education catch-up, which you know, you know all about, Rachel, the backlog in courts, the £2 billion funding hole for the railways. And, of course, then there's levelling up. You know, the, the agenda the Prime Minister considers this legacy-defining um, uh, dimension of his premiership. That really needs to be kind of filled in with all sorts of infrastructure investment. So, and Afghanistan. And Afghanistan, no. of course. Mm -hmm. and, all, and, 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 you know, the cost for resettling, you know, thousands um, of Afghan refugees who are now arriving in the country. So it, it, it's hard to see, you know, how uh, Rishi Sunak gets that maths to square up. Well, we'll have to see if he does. Uh, what, what do you just find? What do you expect? Have you had a walk around Parliament this morning? How, how normal does it? I mean, it never feels that normal. It always feels a bit Hogwarts-y. Uh, how, how normal does it feel, Rachel? I haven't actually had a complete wander around, but the MPs looking very smart, ones I've seen. Very good. What about you, Lucy? Yeah, good. I had to wait, you know, a whole three minutes in the queue for a coffee this morning. <laughs> uh, so, no, PCH, Portcullis House. Is, yeah, it's, it's, it's feeling busy. Um, no, I'm... I'm Desperately glad that everyone's coming back. Lucy Fisher and Rachel Sylvester there. Right, next up, it's our Prime Minister of the Week. Yes, it's 300 years since Britain got its first Prime Minister. And every week this year, we are looking at one of them in detail with our resident historian and author, Andrew Jimson. I'm delighted that Andrew joins me live in the House of Parliament. Morning, Andrew. Absolutely wonderful to be here. And just round the corner from a great corridor, the committee corridor, full of splendid portraits of, of, of prime ministers. Now, I'm, I'm, although you have got a jacket and tie on, I should point out you are wearing chinos. So <laughs> don't let the common speaker speaker see you uh, doing that. Uh, you'll get into lots of trouble. Right, so who is this week's Prime Minister? This, this week's Prime Minister is Asquith, um, uh, who was Prime Minister from 1908 to 1916. Tremendous Olympian intellect, spotted by Gladstone as soon as he came into the House of Parliament. First um, ministerial office was the Home Office, uh, and he was the inevitable successor when Campbell Bannerman died in 1908. Everyone, and he had to go off to Biarritz, actually, to see um, the King, George VII, who was in Biarritz. Uh, and then he started making his cabinet, and he had two um, figures who would emerge as really titanic figures of the 20th century. He had um, Lloyd George in his cabinet and also Winston Churchill into the cabinet in 1908. Uh, so so he, he wasn't a, a prime minister afraid to have big beasts. No, but he was above them as long as peace lasted. He was the Olympian figure. People said he was like a judge. He'd listen and then he'd decide. Uh, he'd guide the conversation. He wouldn't say very much himself. But he was... Uh, 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 these, w the, the First World War was such a horror that one somehow forgets that before the war, we, this country almost had a, a civil war over, over Home Rule for Ireland, which Asquith was putting through and Ulster was going to fight, uh, and things had got very desperate by the summer of, of 1914. 
um, Asquith was writing letters during cabinet meetings to his a w young woman who he was besotted with called Venetia Stanley. He wrote her 600 letters in three years. And uh, he assured her um, towards the end of July 1914 that there wasn't, w we weren't going to be involved in the war. <laughs> we were luckily, we would just be spectators of this thing. And uh, on the 4th of August, we were into the war. I mean, uh, it, so the, not predicting the fall of Kabul is, is not, I mean, these things. History has a Germans march through Belgium, yes, violated Belgium. History Italian. has a habit of repeating exactly, itself exactly, uh, yes, in, yes. in that sense. And what sort of uh, character was he? Well, uh, people said, uh, his critics said that he just drifted uh, and, and that he, he, was, he was too fond of drink and Including bridge. even at the dispatch box. He, I'm afraid he was sometimes the worst for the drink at the dispatch box. He was never exposed at the time. Churchill wrote to his wife saying that it had terrible, in 1911, saying it was terrible. The Prime Minister could not speak last night. It was deeply embarrassing. But somehow there was what Churchill called a Freemasonry in the House of Commons in those days. And of course, no pictures. Of, oh, um, you know, no recordings at all. So I suppose no that's recordings. the thing is that, is that yes. um, uh, these days, we walked literally down the corridor, went into the Commons chamber, there's microphones, there's cameras everywhere. Yes. Boris Johnson. For all of his faults, could not turn up in the House of Commons drunk and it not be spotted. It would be spotted, and when when Rhys Mogg sort of reclined on a bench, <laughs> <laughs> even that was thought by modern by the, by the prosy modern standards to be going a bit far. Yes, although at least he wasn't wearing chinos. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, he's the because uh, I was I was struck uh, looking at um, uh, Asquith's records that um, 1908 to uh, 1960 actually compared to the way we were chopping through them, it's a decent chunk of eight years. Yes, it was a long uh, divided by the, uh, the the First World War. Yes, and he, he was popular when the war broke out, but then as the war became more and more awful, people didn't want this sort of detached manner of leadership and. He had to form a, a coalition with the Conservatives in 1915 to diffuse criticism. And then the Conservative leader, Bonaloy, was, was off to France for important meetings in France. And he had to see the Prime Minister first on a Monday morning. And the Prime Minister said, could you visit me at my country house on the Thames near Abingdon? And so Bonaloy was a blinding boy. He went to Abingdon. He... He, he was shown into the Prime Minister. The Prime Minister was playing bridge with three young women. <laughs> <laughs> and Bonalore, Canadian Presbyterian by origin, he wasn't, didn't think that was funny. Um, uh, so he, he, there was a kind of frivolity about Asquith as well as the, this ability to transact business. And eventually, I mean, somehow people realised that they needed Lloyd George to be running the war effort and not Asquith. Asquith wouldn't serve under Lloyd George. He went out, the Liberals split. Lloyd George was the last Liberal Prime Minister. So in fact... Um, he came in as this dominant figure and left the par party, that, although no one realised it was shattered irrevocably. And is that because uh, the war changed everything, that what people wanted from their politicians changed? Yes, they, want, they needed a warrior, and there were, of course there was a tremendous shortage of shells, and, and Lloyd George dealt with that, and then yeah, somehow they knew. And the people around Asquith, I think, knew as well. I mean, but he, it was a tragic thing. I mean, as for so many people, his, his, his brilliant eldest son, Raymond Asquith, was killed on the Western Front. So um, it was a very hard thing for, for him. But he had this curious insistence on relaxing. So he'd just go <laughs> over to the Athenaeum and read a novel for a couple of hours or something. <laughs> <laughs> but particularly bridge and drink and holding, holding um, young women's hands. Yeah, well, you couldn't imagine these days, uh, you know, our Prime Minister spending the afternoon playing cards with three young women.
No. <laughs> it was impossible. Impossible. Impossible exactly. to <laughs> And how are you um, finding, um, as you're here, because you were sort of based here in Parliament, how, how have you been, you've been wandering around? Are there a lot of people around uh, Parliament? How was your it, office? It, uh, my office, my chair had been nicked. <laughs> And there were lots of, em- <laughs> but there was no one else in the room, so I couldn't launch an investigation into it. But presumably you could uh, just nick somebody else's <laughs> chair. <laughs> yes, I, I, I borrowed someone else's chair, yes. Um, but it's all a bit quiet, but it is really important to get Parliament back, I think, um, and to have the chamber full. As for the Afghan debate, I mean, that is much, then the, even, if the, even if the opposition is coming mainly from within the Conservative Party, which... Um, they have, they're the people who have the power. To it often does, but also yeah. it's a big test. It was a big test of Keir Starmer, but also a big test of Boris Johnson, who hasn't really had to face the cut and thrust of the Commons Chamber. No. Uh, given that he, yeah, he won that landslide election uh, victory, everyone was very happy with him. We were quite quickly into COVID, then lockdowns, and we haven't had that. Um, he hasn't been truly tested at the dispatch box yet, or in the or in the voting lobbies. He hasn't. He wasn't good in Parliament as a backbencher because he wouldn't he wouldn't devote enough time to it. He's been better at the dispatch box, I think, but it will he will be properly tested, and you'll be able to see whether his own troops are behind him or not. Yeah, it's a bit. That's that's true. Is, and if people start yeah. shaking their heads as they tend to, or, yeah, or There- go, just go quiet. And Theresa May does one of her death stares. Ah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's in trouble, yeah. shooting lasers across the Commons chamber. <laughs> Andrew Jimson then, you can pick up a copy of his book, Jimson's Prime Minister's From Warpole to May, wherever you get your books from. Up next, what do voters really think of the Cabinet? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now, let's dig into some exclusive polling with Henry Zeffman. Now, Henry, um, in a moment, we're going to speak to some of the new intake of MPs about uh, that. Not that new now, but they haven't had very many weeks here. But with you, we thought we'd look at the cabinet, because amongst all the other things that Tory MPs are talking about in their various WhatsApp groups, it's just whispers of a reshuffle. How likely is that, do you think? It's quite hard to tell. Um, Lots of people do think it's very serious. And uh, there's been enough 
days of rumour that there's going to be a reshuffle, uh, that Downing Street has had enough of an opportunity to scotch the rumours if it's definitely not happening. On the other hand, it's quite a useful thing for them to have out there because there are big things coming this week, controversial things coming this week, as you've been discussing uh, in the hour of this show so far. And, you know, nothing will make a cabinet minister suppress <laughs> their uh, concerns uh, about uh, what Boris Johnson is planning to do with social care, like uh, the threat of demotion or the prospect of promotion. So, you know, it may be real, but whether it's real or not is very useful uh, for Downing Street to have it out there hanging over ministers. OK, but let's let's talk about some of them then. So we've got some exclusive polling from YouGov uh, where they have asked people instead of how they would vote, because uh, actually, um, I think the latest YouGov poll, the Tories have a sort of four or five point lead. Uh, but in terms of what they think of the politicians themselves, uh, we're, we're, let's start with Boris Johnson, first of all. Do voters have a favourable or unfavourable view of Boris Johnson? Uh, Overall, uh, they have an unfavourable view. So 36% of respondents to this survey said they had a favourable opinion of Boris Johnson. 55% uh, said they had uh, an unfavourable opinion. So that's a negative, net negative uh, of 19 points. So that sounds quite bad, right? This is Boris Johnson. He's the Prime Minister. He won a landslide uh, two years ago. Surely his opinion rating should be higher than that. Well, yes and no. Um, if you look at the cross breaks of the polling, so if you look at the what 2019 Tory voters think of Boris Johnson, the people who gave him this huge majority, the picture's quite a bit rosier for him. Uh, he's got a net positive rating of uh, 41 points. Uh, so it doesn't matter that people who voted Labour and Lib Dem uh, in 2019 still hate him. They hated him in 2019. He won a huge majority. And so, you know, while there is a perhaps a little bit to be concerned of in, um, you know, 28% of 2019 Tory voters having an unfavourable opinion of him, um, I think we all knew in 2019 that there were plenty of sort of Tories holding their nose and voting for Boris Johnson for whatever reason, uh, perhaps because they were uh, Remainers, but, you know, didn't want Jeremy Corbyn to be Prime Minister or something like that. Um, so, and actually, you know, it's amazing that that old Leave Remain uh, break, uh, cross break, still, is still there. 20% of Remainers are favourable towards Boris Johnson, 58% of Leavers. Yeah, although actually even that percentage of Remainers, I think, is not bad for him. One in if, five if you scroll down and look yeah, at Michael yeah. Gove, I mean, basically every person who voted Remain in 2016 <laughs> despises Michael Gove, although so do many Conservatives, <laughs> Labour and Lib Dem voters. So it's not necessarily um, a view of Michael Gove confined to that column on the spreadsheet. Well, let's, um, let's pick through some of those. Uh, actually, I've, just on Boris Johnson, one thing that really, uh, really leapt out to me is almost no gender split at various times uh, there are sort of think pieces written about how boris johnson has a woman problem and actually in terms of favorable and unfavorable it's almost exactly the same men and women i mean the main thing that leapt out to me about this spreadsheet about boris johnson whichever cross break you want to look at is that he's very popular and and it does feel sometimes particularly in this place although not necessarily if you go out to various parts of the country that voted for him you do have to remind both people you speak to and yourself that Boris Johnson is the preeminent electoral politician of our age if our age comes after Tony Blair um, you know Boris Johnson it should not be a surprise at this point he won a huge majority in 2019 um, I'm pretty sure that 
we would not have left the European Union if he hadn't uh, endorsed and campaigned for vote leave. He won two London mayoral elections in a city which had previously not just voted Labour, but voted independent for Ken Livingstone. The man is very good at politics. It should not be a surprise to us <laughs> that people like him. But, you know, in all this discussion of you know, the missteps that it's he has undoubtedly ca- It's a good making. counterpoint to Twitter. And I have... Uh, uh, talking about twitter i have just tweeted the uh, the chart that we're talking about so you can see who's up and who's down uh, amongst senior uh, politicians the only person polling better than uh, boris johnson is rishi sunak the chancellor he's actually got a positive rating yes um and positive uh yeah net positive of eight that is quite rare i think he's the only person who was polled uh, here who does have uh, a positive rating 44 percent of people say they have a favorable opinion 36 say they have a negative um among 2019 Conservative voters, his ratings are even higher than Boris Johnson, plus 51 to Johnson's plus 41. Uh, Among 2019 Labour voters, he's much less unpopular. Boris Johnson has net negative of 81 amongst uh, 2019 Labour voters. Rishi Sunak just a net negative of 29. Um, So again, not very surprising. We know that Rishi Sunak became very popular, particularly... Uh, around the time of the furlough scheme being announced, but also because he was the sort of first minister uh, to appear in one of those uh, early daily press conferences to show a bit of common empathy um, and actually speak vaguely uh, humanly about uh, <laughs> you know the the disaster which was engulfing so many people's lives. But you know, if you want to feed this into a question of okay, well, why don't Conservative MPs just dump? Rishi Sunak for, oh, dump Boris Johnson for Rishi Sunak. You know, Rishi Sunak seems even more popular. Well, you know, I do think if you speak to Conservative MPs, the man is still just a year and a half into being Chancellor. He has so far uh, only had to make fairly popular decisions, albeit in a very uh, crisis-dominated time. Um, And I think the next week, the questions over social care and the tax to pay for it and the months that follow will give us a much better sense uh, of Rishi Sunak's uh, mettle in terms of the internal debate in government, uh, policy debates uh, and political questions, but also in terms of whether the public is going to continue to see him as a sort of... uh, better version of Boris Johnson. I suppose the interesting, I mean, instead of seeing everything through the prism of rivalry between the two men, there is a there is an issue of sort of yin and yang, that they do complement each other. That if, if, if Rishi Sunak is reaching into uh, Labour, people who voted Labour in 2019, and he's winning them over and charming them, while Boris Johnson's holding on to people who voted Conservative in 2019, that's a pretty formidable uh, political machine. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, if you don't see there's no reason we have to see i mean look, clearly they are disagreeing on some things at the moment but ultimately it's good for the prime minister if his chancellor is popular yeah certainly better for the prime minister than his chancellor being dramatically unpopular um or completely unknown because then he has com- to do all the all the heavy lifting himself uh, le- um talking uh, uh, of uh, unknown let's let's turn our attention to some of the, the other other cabinet ministers um dominic raab uh, dominated over the summer uh, actually, I w- I'll, be, I'll be honest, having looked at the chart, uh, Dominic Raab is now down to, uh, was it minus... Minus 39. Minus 39. Doesn't sound great. Which is pretty bad, uh, but he was already in a pretty bad... He wasn't hugely popular before. Um, I was, if anything, I was surprised it wasn't a bit worse. Yeah, I mean, I wonder whether some of the sort of stuff to do with Dominic Raab's holiday uh, is one of those sort of slightly Westminster versions, uh, you know, where Westminster focuses on a particular element of a story, whereas I think what a lot of voters will be paying attention to more so uh, you know, is what the disaster that's unfolded in Afghanistan or the, you know, the the, the, the questions about uh, Britain's long military involvement there and whether it was worth it. 
Um, but I still don't think it's good. I mean, you know, it, it, the man is deeply unpopular, including with conservative voters, where he has a net negative of uh, eight <laughs> points. Um, and so in the context of the reshuffle, I mean, you know, the, bi the big reshuffles are ones where uh, a senior minister gets moved. Well, that's uh, the point. There's no point, as uh, perhaps uh, you could argue Keir Starmer discovered, there's no point uh, embarking on a reshuffle unless you're going to make big changes that people are going to notice. And particularly if you're in government, that means changing one of the big jobs. He's clearly not going to move Rishi Sunak. Uh, the other two jobs are uh, foreign and home. Sure. And Dominic Raab is p arguably, based on the headlines, you'd say he's put himself in the prime spot to be moved. But Priti Patel actually polls even worse. Yes, Priti Patel has a negative rating of 47 points. Um, and she's even more unpopular with conservative voters uh, than Dominic Raab. I mean, that's quite an interesting thing. I mean, Priti Patel is often talked about as this activist's favourite, conservative activist's favourite. And this is a reminder that, um, you know, conservative voters are obviously a much larger number than the... Um, incredibly paltry uh, membership of the Conservative Party, famously uh, paltry. Also, I do wonder, it's one of those like, accepted wisdoms that all she polls very well. That, people saying that two, three years ago, quite yes. a lot has happened yes. at that time. Um, and I, there might be various reasons why she's uh, generally unpopular with uh, voters. But no, I mean, uh, well, you mentioned Boris Johnson's woman problem. I mean, maybe, you know, he might be equivalently popular or unpopular with men as with women polling wise. But there is a problem with the number of women in the cabinet, which is lower now, I think, than it was you know, in 2006, uh, Tony Blair's last cabinet. Um, so, you know, I don't think it would be a great look necessarily to move uh, a woman from a great office of state unless he was, uh, you know. Go to replace them with one. Exactly. The other, just finally, uh, Henry, on this polling, the other thing that leapt out to me was poor old Ben Wallace, who has put in a shift over the summer. People like you and I may have said he'd had a better uh, war, if you like. You know, he, he, in terms of his sort of empathetic reaction to what was going on in Afghanistan, uh, more so than uh, Dominic Raab. But basically, nobody knows who he is. Yeah, I mean, you know, you could look at it and say as a net negative of, of eight points. The, the reality is that only 28% of people had a view. Um, so two percent of people don't. But know look, if you're in Boris Johnson's cabinet and people don't viscerally loathe you, that seems to be success. Uh, so I suspect Ben Wallace, uh, unless you're Rishi Sunak. So I think Ben Wallace will be will be staying where he is. I'm sure that's that's the case. That's uh, possibly right. Henry Zephyr, thanks so much for talking us through uh, what the public think of uh, the cabinet, which I'm sure as and when Boris Johnson embarks on a reshuffle, whether it's this week or not, he'll be looking at exactly the sort of polling uh, we've just been looking through. And like I said, if you want to uh, see the chart that we've just been discussing, I've tweeted it at Matt Chorley. Now, in a moment, we're going to hear from two, uh, uh, three uh, 29 uh, MPs, uh, 2019 MPs who were elected two years ago, only had a few weeks in the House of Parliament, and then were immediately dispatched their constituencies for the first of uh, several lockdowns. Uh, we'll speak to them in just a moment. Uh, but first, we'll speak, uh, well, let's hear from an SNP MP. The trouble with MPs from Scotland is they're always travelling on a Monday morning. So before he set off, I spoke to Stephen Flynn. He was elected the SNP MP for Aberdeen South in 2019. And I asked him just how many times he'd actually set foot in the House of Parliament since the election. Yeah, I've probably set foot uh, a little more than some of my colleagues have, I think. I, I, uh, I grew quite weary quite quickly of the virtual proceedings, uh, and it's it's not too difficult to get from Aberdeen to London with a direct flight. So I went down quite a few times uh, once we were able to, to travel and restrictions were lifted. Uh, but it's in no way been what I necessarily expected it to be, uh, for, that's for certain. Um, so, yeah, it's been, it's been an interesting uh, 18 months, two years. Uh, in terms of trying to travel uh, in and amongst all the restrictions. But I've, I've felt safe, uh, otherwise I wouldn't have done it. And what do you expect to be sort of, you'd be focusing on in the new, in the new term? 
Yeah, and I think that's a really important question. Uh, COVID recovery is uh, going to be the, the fundamental point. Obviously, we've got the Chancellor's autumn statement coming up and we need to see what he's going to be going to be doing. From my own niche perspective, I want to see lots of money thrown at the energy transition and I want Aberdeen, the northeast of Scotland, to be uh, at the forefront of that. We've obviously uh, aware of the fact he's intending on cutting universal credit, so hoping he'll re- uh, reverse his stance on that. But moving forward as a Scottish nationalist, I want to see a situation where that COVID recovery uh, is one that's under the control of the, the Scottish government. So I'm looking for a, a second independence referendum to be agreed to uh, in the not too distant future. And hopefully we can get campaigning for, for me to be travelling to Westminster even less. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you about that. It's a slightly weird situation you've got, that you've got a job where you basically, you are one of those turkeys who want to vote for Christmas. You want to be put out of your job. You want to be not going to Westminster. You almost don't want Westminster to work particularly well. It's sort of, uh, you, you know, a dysfunction of Westminster, which treats Scotland quite badly. It's quite good for you mounting your arguments. It's a sort of weird tension of doing your job properly, helping your constituents and all that, while also proving that Westminster isn't serving Scotland. Do you have to sort of, you're a bit sort of schizophrenic like that? I know what you mean, yeah. But I'm, I'm quite happy to be the last ever MP for Aberdeen South, if that's, if that's what it means in terms of getting Scottish independence, absolutely. Yeah, it's 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 bizarre. You know, we, we get treated with contempt in that place. You, you see it every time Ian, uh, our leader, obviously stands to his feet and the Tories either heckle or leave. Uh, they've got no interest in, in talking about Scotland's future. But we're there to, to do a job, which is is to talk about Scotland, to talk, talk about what Scotland can achieve uh, and, and how we can put forward that alternate vision. And we have the platform to do that. And it's important that we engage on that basis and that's that's what we're there to do and, and that's what I've tried to do uh, every day that I've been down there and obviously moving forward I'll, I'll continue to do that. Uh, just finally then, uh, the big question is uh, if, when there's going to be uh, a second independence referendum, when do you think it will be? When do you want it? Next year, year after? I think the, the Scottish government, with obviously the new agreement uh, with us and, and the Greens, we've been quite clear that hopefully it will be in the, the, the first half of the, the new Scottish parliamentary term, which obviously uh, just started uh, not long after the, the May election. So that, that that's our aim and our ambition. But we need to obviously be cognizant of the situation in relation to COVID. And I think anyone who tries to pin a date on anything at this moment in time uh, is, is perhaps doing something that they have no control over. So yeah, uh, my aim is uh, certainly the next 18 months, two years, as I think all Scottish nationalists would, would hope. Uh, and uh, yeah, I hope we get to that point. And as I said earlier, we no longer have to be travelling to Westminster full stop. And what's the one thing about the Houses of Parliament you'd miss if you were no longer the MP for Aberdeen South? That I'd miss? Oof, that's a tough question. You know what? I actually quite like the back and forward in the in the chamber. I came from a, a very robust uh, local authority um, and uh, the House of Commons is just almost like a bigger version of that. So I quite I quite like the to and fro and, uh, but I don't think it does anyone any favours, to be honest, uh, the back and forth with politicians. But I, I personally quite uh, quite like it, although I probably shouldn't say that. <laughs> It's quite, it's quite fun for those involved. It's less fun for those watching, I think. Probably the, probably the yeah, I think that probably sums it up. <laughs> <laughs> that was Stephen Flynn there, the uh, SMP MP for Aberdeen South. First elected in 2019. I spoke to him before he headed off, uh, leaving Aberdeen uh, to head down to London. Well, now I'm joined here live in the House of Parliament uh, by the Labour MP for Sheffield Hallam, Olivia Blake. Hi, Olivia. Nice to have you with us. Uh, we've also got on the line Alex Stafford, Conservative MP for Rother Values, heading down to London. Hi, Alex. Hi there. Uh, nice to have you with us. So, Olivia, here we are in the slightly ridiculously you know, upper waiting hall, which makes it sound like a small cupboard. It's not this very grand room in the house. How often have you, how many times have you been down here? Have you managed to not get lost? Do you know your way around enough as a new MP to not get lost? Um, yeah. 
you know what it's been quite difficult because we had like 12 weeks and then lockdown but I have been down quite a bit um but yeah like committees haven't been sitting in these rooms so I was on the public accounts committee um and yeah I've never been in any of these rooms really so yeah not much at all what about you Alex how, how many times have you you managed to make it to parliament well, I've tried to be down as, as, as much as possible. And really, since the end of the lockdown in what is it, March, April this year, I've been down every, every day in Parliament. So I believe parliamentarians should be in Parliament and should be doing the job we were elected to do. And what is it about, what difference does it make about being in the chamber, Alex, against uh, being on Zoom uh, to ask it, your minister the it, question? It makes a huge difference. The way of doing things, but the most important difference for me is the whole purpose of debates. Debates are not meant to be prepared, read out speeches. And on Zoom, you, you constantly get MPs from all sides of the House. This is not pointing blame at any party, just pre- reading out prepared speeches. Uh, and that's it, just the clips on social media. You can't actually have a proper discussion. You can't intervene. You can't challenge a point. And we've seen that actually lacks sort of any sort of dynamism and any sort of challenge the uh, executive. Uh, so I think actually having that ability to uh, interject and actually hold uh, ministers, hold speakers to account is vital. Otherwise, frankly, you might as well just send a copy of your speech to Hansard and not bother reading it out. <laughs> just no fax it over. Yeah, yeah, just fact. What about you, Olivia? What, what what do you think is important about everyone being here? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it does make a, a good difference. I think it has been good to be able to keep Parliament going and everyone who might not be able to attend Parliament to be involved during this period. But yeah, I think it is. It's obviously nice to be able to intervene on on speeches and kind of be in the chamber and hear um, hear the debate much more kind of lively. Um, and we saw that on the day that we came back. So yeah, yeah it is definitely. A lot more. And what robust. about getting to know your colleagues in the Labour Party? Uh, um, although uh, you know, didn't make huge uh, progress in uh, overall numerical terms in 2019. There were quite a lot of new faces. That, you know, are you a gang in yeah. the sort of Labour 29 intake? Yeah, we call. But, it, but yeah. is it all done via WhatsApp? It's absolutely done via WhatsApp. <laughs> so <laughs> it's been really nice to get to know like the 2019 intake, as we call ourselves. But it's um, yeah, it's been really nice and kind of. I think we've all kind of been through the same experience and it's really kind of bonded us together in a way I don't know other intakes have been. And have you got so. plans to, for a night out, all of you together? Oh, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be nice. Um, but yeah, I'm sure we'll, we'll get dinner and something yeah. very soon. And what about you, Alex? Because obviously a whole load of Tory, new Tory MPs in 2019 scattered across the country and actually in parts of the country where the Tories haven't, haven't been uh, before. Um, how many different WhatsApp groups are you in for 2019ers, oh, red ballers, I, I, I young ones? On yeah. Literally over 30 different WhatsApp groups. You wow. From what mixture of different uh, policy <laughs> issues, different wings of the parties, different uh, intakes, so even whether you've got children or not, whether children go to the parliamentary nursery. I mean, there's so many different ones. <laughs> it's a, it's which which, which, which group's the most annoying? Which one is people always posting in? Oh, it's always the uh, the ones about sort of uh, the backbench ones, sort of back good backbenchers having good sort of complain here and there about everything and anything under the sun. So that's always a good fun one to watch. But we all know um, they all end up in the newspaper anyway. So they do exactly right, exactly right. Well, obviously, one of the things that they're complaining about most, it seems, at the moment, right now, Alex, is uh, the idea of putting up national insurance to pay for social care. Where are you on uh, on this uh, issue? Would you support that if that's what they bring forward—a one percent rise in national insurance to, to fund social care? Well, let's be honest, I'm a Conservative, and therefore Conservatives, we shouldn't be raising taxes willy-nilly. That's the last thing we want to be doing. But what we want to do is actually see a plan. We can't just raise tax without a plan to actually make fundamental changes and make things better. My concern is if they just uh, add an extra 1% of national insurance or whatever, uh, but no actual fundamental ways to make uh, social care and have social care provision better, it's a bit sort of a bit pointless. 
what we need is a new plan of how we provide social care and then see, OK, how much does it cost and how much we're going to need to get to get from the public and work it out that way. We can't just raise it without having a new way of providing social care and thinking about social care. Uh, Alex Tufford there. Uh, and Olivia, I want to ask you about the Labour Party. Uh, given everything that's happened over the summer, whether it's uh, exams, Afghanistan, uh, rows over social care, um, uh, right across the board, you know, record number of migrants crossing the channel on almost every policy area, mm-hmm. the government seems to be in trouble. And yet they're still out polling uh, the Labour Party. And in the polling we were just discussing with Henry Zeffman, uh, Keir Starmer's uh, polling worse. He's on minus 23, Boris Johnson's on minus 19. Are you worried that, that the public have made up their mind about Keir Starmer already and he's not having an impact? Well, I think this year has been incredibly difficult to become leader of any party and I think you know not being in the chamber as much not having the opportunity to like have a proper conference last year has really made it quite difficult so I'm really looking forward to Labour Party conference and uh, seeing the leader set out his plans and where where we're going to go and I think that that will be a turning point and I think more people will get to know the real Keir Starmer and see see what our policies will take us. Um, obviously one of the, the advantages of being back in Westminster is that uh, I can collar you in the coffee shop queue, but you can also collar Keir Starmer maybe in the voting lobbies or whatever. Uh, Ahead of that party conference, what's your one bit of advice for him? What would you like to see him do? Oh, I just think, you know... Um, looking forward we, we need to be really ambitious and you know I'm shadow minister for nature so I'd obviously love to see something around COP15 and COP26 and what Labour's plans are for, for the environment really. That's a good uh, area to focus on. Alex uh, if you manage to collar the, the Prime Minister in the voting lobbies what are you what's, what's top of your list of things to bend his ear about? Oh, the one I always been here is the Living Up Farm. We put an application for uh, £20 million, £10 million for one of my high streets. We want that money, and I want to make sure the Prime Minister makes sure he delivers on the cash he's promised to our areas. So that's number one issue, and I'll be banging that drum constantly uh, until the day I stop being an MP. <laughs> Very good. I suppose there was a slight tension there, Alex, is you want the money from him, but you don't want him to put up any taxes to find it. Well, we can get the money from cancelling HS2 for a start. That would be the best thing forward for everyone, frankly. So the money's there, just cancel HS2. Uh, yeah, uh, his, the problem is his ear is going to be well and truly bent, I think, but even by the end of the day, but by the end of the week. Alex Stafford, thanks so much for joining us. Conservative MP for Rother Valley, heading down to Westminster and joining me live in the House of Parliament here. Olivia Blake, Labour MP for Sheffield Hallam. Good to see you. Thanks very much uh, for joining us. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We're bringing the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.